episode 20. God bless you and welcome back to Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. I'm Kirk Van Odeham, your host to the podcast that provides brief, thoughtful, biblical answers to your questions. And as always, I'm looking forward uh, to responding to and addressing questions uh, that have been submitted uh, to this podcast. And uh, today I'm going to try to answer a couple of different questions. Uh, the first one deals uh, with the subject of Cain's wife and uh, where she came from. Always a popular, frequently asked question. And the second one deals with a more personal matter that was uh, uh, submitted to the podcast regarding personal uh, disappointment over uh, a listener and their uh, being unmarried. So we'll get to both of those today. First, let me remind all of our Listeners, whether you're a brand new listener or whether you're a return listener, uh, we always love it when you submit questions to the podcast so that we have uh, some good uh, fodder to consider uh, in answering uh, questions on future podcasts. So if you would like to submit a question to be addressed on a future episode, you can do so by uh, going to the podcast website, which is at kirkvan.com, and there you can fill out a form. Uh, you could do so anonymously if you like. Or if you prefer, uh, go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Bible FAQ with Kirk Van. And there you can like and follow our page and then also submit a private message with your question. Or you can always email us. That address is question at kirkvan.com. However you decide to contact us, we look forward to hearing from you and always appreciate all the questions uh, you sent us, as well as other comments and feedback if you choose to send that as well. So let's get into the questions for today. Uh, the first question I want to address comes to us from Don, and I always say parts unknown since this listener Don didn't provide a, a location where he resides. And this question came through the uh, website. And the question is very short and simple. Who was Cain's wife? Where did she come from? And so let me start by saying this is a surprisingly controversial question that has caused a lot of trouble and confusion for some people. I say surprisingly because it seems the answer is really clear in Scripture and really only one, uh, you know, possibility, I guess you could say, or, or one real possibility. Um, so, you know, my theory about questions like this is that people are just attracted to religious mysticism and esoteric explanations of, of biblical topics. And uh, human beings uh, like you and I also thrive on controversy and intrigue and are certainly willing to manufacture it if necessary. So this is really a pretty simple question, but it's convoluted or uh, by the fact that there's all kinds of different um you know, in my estimation, unbiblical theories and speculations about this topic. So first, uh, before I answer the question, just a quick refresher on Cain and who he is. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel uh, comes to us in Genesis chapter number four. And Cain and Abel were both the sons of Adam and Eve, obviously the first human beings. Uh, and uh, from what we can tell, 
most probably the the first two that uh, sons that were born to Adam and Eve. Um, that may not be the case. We don't know that for sure. They just may be mentioned first because of the the story that we read about in Genesis four. Um, but more than likely, the first two sons. Uh, and then, uh, of course, as the story goes, and I'm not going to go into it because I think most are familiar with it. And you can certainly go and read Genesis 4. Uh, but Cain murdered his brother Abel. And, uh, of course, this was was seen as a, a abominable, inex, inexcusable to God. It was the first murder, obviously, that ever took place. And so Cain's punishment was, was severe. The curse, as the scripture calls it, upon Cain. Uh, part of the curse... Or the punishment was that his agricultural labor uh, would not be fruitful. So that was the thing that he loved most. Uh, he was a farmer, a tiller of the ground, but uh, he would no longer be fruitful in his attempts uh, uh, to work in agriculture, to be a farmer after that point. Uh, but perhaps worse, or at least equally as bad, uh, the Bible tells us that Cain was banished from the face of the earth to become a wanderer and a vagabond. In other words, he was exiled uh, from uh, most of the other human beings that were alive at that time. And so we'll get into that more in a moment. So and then later in Genesis 4, uh, verse 17, uh, after this incident, it mentions that uh, Cain... Uh, had a wife and we don't know if he had the wife previously or he took a wife at this point just say that it just says in genesis uh, 4 and 17 uh, that cain knew his wife and conceived uh, so he had a child with his wife after that uh, after his punishment his banishment and he had a son named enoch not to be confused with the descendant of noah uh, but a different enoch was Cain's offspring. That's the only one offspring is mentioned in the Bible, although he very well could have had others as well. So the simple answer to the question about who was Cain's wife and where did she come from, uh, the simple answer is, is that Cain married his sister, uh, and if not his sister, other close relative, for example, perhaps a niece. Um, now, some find this answer to be inadequate or objectionable, and certainly even revolting due to the rightful, uh, rightfully strong stigma against incest uh, in, in today's culture. And in fact, through most, throughout most civilizations throughout history. So many assume that God wouldn't permit incest. And so there must be another explanation as to where, who, the identity of Cain's wife. Uh, however, you know, biblically that is not true and not the case. Uh, incest among close family members became forbidden later under Mosaic law, but this was like over 2,500 years after the time of Adam and Eve. Uh, so this is a long time later. Uh, in Genesis, only incest between a parent and child was specifically and expressly condemned. And there are certainly, uh, as uh, awkward and revolting as it sounds to us today, there are other examples in Genesis of married, marriage among close relatives. Um, the patriarchs, uh, for example, Abram and Sarah. Uh, uh, Sarah was Abram's half-sister. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, so Rebekah was the daughter of Isaac's cousin. Uh, Jacob married sisters, Leah and Rachel, and they were both his first cousins. Uh, so, um, and also when it comes to um, even before the time of Abraham, uh, Noah, 
uh, and the destruction of the, the earth from the flood. Um, um, of course, Noah had three sons and his wife, and each of his sons had a wife. And so they were saved, those, those uh, 12 people, I guess it is, uh, were saved. Uh, but then they repopulated the earth after that because everyone else had perished in the flood. So the descendants of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, obviously, in order to marry and reproduce, had to marry their cousins at the very least. So, I mean, this is this is not unusual in Genesis, not unusual in the Bible, even though it sounds awkward. Uh, it certainly was not forbidden at that time. And there's many reasons why marriage among close family members was not problematic this early on in human history. Number one, it was out of necessity, out of lack of other options. Um, later, it became unnecessary as more people populated the earth. Uh, but in the beginning, both at the beginning with Adam and Eve and, and at the time of Noah, it would have been necessary. And then, of course, today we know that incest results in genetic defects, which is why, uh, which is one of the significant reasons why a, a huge stigma has um, come about in regards to uh, close family marriages. Um, but there's no reason to believe that those genetic defects existed in the days of Adam and Eve and their offspring. Um, we know that, you know, Adam and Eve were created in perfection. We know that they enjoyed, you know, great health and longevity, much, much more than we do. And so the gene pool was not polluted early on as it is today. The farther we get from Adam and Eve historically, the more common and the more significant the toll of sin would have taken on genetics. And so there's no reason to believe that incestual relationships, for lack of a better term, marriage between close family members as they existed in Genesis would have caused any genetic defects. Uh, so back to the topic of the identity of Cain's wife. Uh, the Bible provides no indication of the age of Cain and Abel at the time of uh, the murder of Abel. There's no reason to assume they were like children or young men, teenagers. Is It's often assumed that, but there's no biblical reason to assume that. Um, some have projected that, you know, the, the biblical limit would be uh, around 130 years old uh, that, um, that would have that would have been the case. And that's taken at the age that um, that's that's taken from a, a different information. But nevertheless, it, maybe he was 50 years old. Maybe he, he was 100 uh, when he had offspring. Uh, we know uh, that, you know, again, people in the Bible and Genesis enjoyed longevity. And uh, so having many children over many years was entirely possible and, and most likely probable. Uh, Adam, for example, lived to be 930 years old, according to Genesis 5 and 5. And other descendants of Adam had very long lifespans as recorded in the genealogies uh, of the book of Genesis. We do know that Adam was 130 years old when he had his 
uh, presumably third-born son, Seth, and lived another 800 years after that. The Bible also tells us in Genesis, uh, at least once, I believe a couple times, that Adam had sons and daughters. So we know of three sons by name, but there's no reason to believe that those were the only three. They're the only three mentioned because they're important to the history uh, of the Bible, but there's no reason to believe that there were not others' sons uh, that Adam had. And then I also mentioned he had daughters. None of them are named, but we know there was at least two because of the plural use of the word daughters with an S. Um, and actually, the biblical tradition that Josephus cited, of course, was an uh, ancient Jewish historian, was that Adam had 33 sons and 21 daughters. Now, I, I readily admit that that is just a, a Jewish tradition. It may not be true. It may not be accurate. However, that was the tradition at the, at the time. Uh, the second temple period is when, when Josephus lived. And so, you know, based on the information um, from, from Scripture and the age of the patriarchs and that sort of thing, it's estimated conservatively that at the time of Abel's death, there could have been uh, as many as 32,000 people uh, on earth that were descendants of Adam and Eve. Um, because of the longevity of their lives and the and the potential age that they could have been during the time of these events. Even if there was significantly more than that, there still could have been in the thousands. The point is that it is more than reasonable to conclude that there were plenty of women descended from Adam and Eve that would have been available for Cain to marry. Uh, there's no biblical reason for us to generate or produce some other theory of where uh, Cain's wife would have come from. So then the question arises then, or were there other options? Are there other explanations as, uh, uh, as to who the identity of Cain's wife may have been? Uh, my response is not biblical ones, not ones that are the natural reading of the text of Genesis or the rest of the, of the Bible for that matter. Uh, there, there seems to be no um, intention from the biblical record to give us any indication of any any other explanation now some have postulated or supposed uh, that other human beings existed that were not related by blood to adam and eve they often call it a pre-adamic race that uh, god created other humans and in a way after a manner that the bible does not specifically record but then Adam was created separately for some reason. And, and the explanations vary widely, so I'm not going to get into that uh, too, uh, too much. Uh, my view on this is it's just uh, there's sim simply not uh, substantiated by Scripture. It's not introduced by Scripture. It's not substantiated by Scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 45 uh, tells us that Adam was the first man. Uh, that Greek is protos anthropos, literally the first human. Uh, grammatically, the word first here is in the superlative form, so we could literally translate it, Adam was the very first human. So that would indicate there was no other human beings before Adam. Uh, also, Genesis 3 and 20 states clearly that Adam named his wife Eve, and the Bible says because she is the mother of all the living. That's what the name Eve means. So the, the clear, I want to say implication, the clear explanation here is that Eve uh, was the mother of every human being that lived. And of course, Adam being uh, her, her 
husband. So every human being would have would have um, uh, came from them uh, genetically and otherwise. And then uh, you know another verse of scripture, just for good measure, Acts seventeen and twenty six. Uh, this is part of Paul's uh, sermon to Mar Mars Hill in Athens. God has made, the King James Version reads, of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. Other translations say for one, um, from one man he made all nations, or from one man he made all the people of the earth. So again, just another New Testament verification of, the, of what seems to be clear in the, in the book of Genesis, uh, that all human beings were descended from one man, from Adam and his wife Eve. So, you know, the theologically, there's much more to this argument. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now and get off topic. Perhaps we'll talk about more about pre-Adamic race theories at another time. Uh, but my point here is that simply there's no biblical reason to believe that such a thing as a pre-Adamic race existed or that there was other human beings other than what developed as the offspring of Adam and Eve. Uh, certainly not. I mean, is it, is it possible that, you know, there's just things that happen that the Bible doesn't record? Anything is possible. We could literally make up anything, but certainly there's no necessary uh, biblical reason why we have to come up with such a, such a, uh, a theory. It's not logically necessarily. It's not practically necessary. It's not scripturally necessary. Um, and and really, the all the theories that I have seen really come from speculation or conjecture with no solid or biblical evidence. Um, from a historical perspective, the ideas that there's other people, other pre-Adamic race, if you will, pre-Adamic meaning before Adam. Um, you know, if you, if you just look at the literature, there's no early Christian or Jewish traditions other than Cain's wife was his sister. Um, there's no competing theories on this for, for at least a thousand years after Christ, thereabouts. And uh, it really, pre-Adamic theories didn't g really gain any significant traction at all uh, historically in, in, in known literature uh, until a few hundred years ago, mostly mostly in the 19th century onward. So this is a very novel development uh, that there was other people besides Adam and Eve not related to them. Uh, and mostly these seem to have developed to explain various controversies that are external to the Bible itself. So to explain other theories and speculations that people had that are not introduced by the Bible, but people felt compelled to respond to. So in summary, on this question of who was Cain's wife and where she come from, the Bible, uh, I, I, I should mention before I give the summary, that really the only, um, the only kind of ancient, I guess, uh, story or information we have about this comes from the Book of Jubilees, which was an estimated date of writing. Some say 100 BC, some say 160, 150 BC. So you know, uh, you know, certainly, you know, just just 100, 150 years before Christ, somewhere in that area. Uh, this book of Jubilees, uh, some people consider it sacred. It's an extra biblical uh, resource, uh, but it is an ancient Jewish writing. 
Uh, and uh, this book says that um, Abel, or excuse me, Cain married his sister, whose name was Awan in the book. And so um, that's the only other um, really relevant uh, information that we have outside the Bible. Now, again, I have no believe, reason to believe that this is a credible or true source of this historical anyway, uh, but the only other explanation or the only alternative uh, account that we have pretty much agrees with what we can uh, clearly assume from Scripture. So, again, in summary, on the question of uh, Cain's wife and where she came from, uh, the only logical, reasonable explanation was it was his sister or at least a very close relative, uh, perhaps a niece, and uh, there's no reason to believe that there was other people that would have existed uh, for Cain to marry other than those who developed as the offspring of Adam and Eve, and it could have been as many as 32,000 people uh, on the earth at the time that the son, that, 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 Cain began to reproduce. So, interesting topic, controversial for, for sure, but I think unnecessarily so. As with many things in life, the simplest explanation is often the correct, correct explanation. Well, uh, I do want to um, and respond to another question I received just recently. And this question comes to me from an individual who identifies himself as Timmy. And uh, Timmy sent an email and uh, I'll just read the, the entire email because it's very short. It says, saved at 26, now 55. Always thought God had a mate for me and kids, but it never happened. I don't want them this late in life. Why did it not happen? I'm so disappointed. So, well, first, Timmy, thank you for reaching out with your question. And, of course, I can't possibly know the intricate details of your specific case and your life and answer the question uh, as, as to why I don't have any special insight into the will of God for any individual life. I, I'm just trying to do the best I can do to figure out God's will for my own life. So I, I do have, you know, a few things do come to mind that, that uh, are relevant to this. So I'll just comment generally. And again, that might, these might not apply personally to Timmy or at least all these things. Uh, uh, but just some things that come to mind that I'd like to say on this topic about uh, what he, what Timmy addresses. And so the first thing is about, um, you know, being sing single, uh, living a single celibate life. And certainly biblically, from a biblical perspective, uh, the Bible is clear that this can be a blessing. Uh, the most prominent passage of scriptures in 1 Corinthians 7 that talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about singleness Paul refers to singleness, in other words, uh, you know, being uh, not having a spouse, uh, uh, not being uh, being unattached uh, from a spouse. He refers to this single lifestyle as a gift, and Paul says even that he wishes uh, everyone was like him in this respect. Uh, Paul was presumably single, um, so Paul pre presents throughout this chapter. Paul presents singleness as either no better or no worse uh, than being married. There's not one preferred way to do things. Uh, and so there are benefits and blessings uh, to being uh, single that Paul recounts. In fact, uh, from verses 25 onward, 
Uh, Paul makes several points on the benefits of being single or unattached from a spouse. I'll just quickly mention these five points. The first one from verse 25 is uh, Paul alludes to this present distress and saying that uh, it's a singleness is a benefit because of the pressure, the stress, the difficulty of life. Now, in Paul's day, it was probably persecution that was taking place in the church. However, every age of, of uh, believers has its own unique pressures and stresses and difficulties. And so being single can alleviate one's life from some of those pressures and stresses. Uh, in verse 28, he talks about those that marry will have trouble in the flesh. And from the context, I believe this means that they'll have problems that result from the married life. These can vary uh, in, in degree and intensity from just everyday uh, you know, kind of conflict that married people have to more long-term, you know, kind of permanent um, negative connotations of marriage, such as financial responsibilities, uh, relational conflicts, family problems, and what have you. For the single person, they don't have the, these same problems, at least to, not to the same extent and intensity. The third thing that Paul talks about is he's talking about that time is short and that this world is going to pass away. And that's in verses 29 through 31. So the implication here is that there is no benefit of marriage when one has an eternal perspective. Uh, our life on this uh, on on this planet is very short, no matter if we lived in Paul's day or today. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's going to pass very quickly um, no matter what we do, and we know for sure that this world will pass away. So when we view things rightfully from an eternal perspective, it's not like we're going to be sitting in eternity, sitting in heaven and say, man, I really wish I was married when I was, you know, on the earth. It's not going to matter from that perspective is what Paul is saying. And in and, and the same, uh, and when Couple this with the next couple here in verses 32 through 35, Paul is discussing divided focus or loyalties uh, that a married person has by virtue of their commitment to their relationship. Uh, it talks about the, the married person uh, lives for and serves their husband or their wife, where the single person is freed to focus their attention on their service to the Lord. And in verse 35, it talks about doing so without distraction. And so Paul sees this as a benefit and a blessing, saying, listen, you know, there's, there's earlier he said there's a, there's a lot of trouble in the flesh. There's, there's problems associated with married life that single people just don't have. And, and they're free, therefore, to devote all their time and all their energy and their service to the Lord without distraction when he which he presents as as a as a huge positive a huge plus if you will uh pro on the in the column <laughs> and the pros and cons column and then finally the fifth thing that paul says is that uh, he talks about marriage being binding about a lifelong serious commitment in verses 39 and 40 uh, you know, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is one that uh, it is uh, something that one should take very seriously. And uh, that's why when anybody who marries must enter into it, understanding that. And uh, when troubles and difficulties do arise, um, that can be a major problem. I'm reminded of the question of the apostles, or I guess I should say the statement of the apostles in Matthew 19 and 10, when Jesus was talking about the permanency of marriage and that the only appropriate and uh, uh, 
justification for a divorce is, is uh, uh, sexual unfaithfulness. Uh, they said, if this be the case, then it's better not to marry, is the quotation from uh, most of the English translations. They say it's better not to marry. If marriage is that binding, then maybe for many, it's better not to marry. And when we see the divorce rate, even in modern times, and it's hard to argue with that logic from one perspective. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture that marriage is miserable or it's undesirable because the Bible doesn't uh, endorse that view either. Uh, the point is that from an eternal perspective and with many of these arguments that Paul's make, singleness is no better or no worse than marriage, and marriage is no better or no worse than uh, living a single lifestyle, even throughout one's life. It's all, uh, as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's all about our mindset and our expectations. So, Timmy, what I would tell you and what I would tell anybody who's experiencing disappointment in this area, similar area, is uh, number one thing that comes to mind is contentment. The biblical principle of contentment is a virtue that is severely undervalued and underappreciated, underutilized um, by, I think, many believers today. Of course, contentment is just the desire uh, to have no more than what one has or to be satisfied or at peace with the way things are. In other words, willing to accept or acquiesce uh, to, to God's will and the circumstances that God has provided for us. We call that contentment. Now, a couple of verses of scripture that you're probably familiar with, Philippians 4 and 11, Paul writes, Not that I speak with respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be a base. I know how, how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. So Paul said here he has learned to be content. And I think that's an important distinction. It's not necessarily something that comes uh, just instinctively to us, that we're just in a natural state of contentment. I think it's a discipline that we have to cultivate. And when we really uh, become disciplined in our, in our spiritual walk and spiritual life and mature as Christians, I think we have to deliberately focus on being content and strive to be content. Uh, so it's a learned characteristic, I would say. Another verse of scripture I'll share on contentment is from Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So here, let your conversation be without covetousness. This word conversation in the King James Version is kind of tricky. It really has a, a implication of more of your life or your lifestyle. So you let your life be without covetous, covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Now, some translations talk about uh, money, but the word money actually doesn't exist in here. It's just supplied by the translators. Certainly, there's a strong biblical connection uh, between contentment and money and materialism that we should be content financially with the things God has provided. But contentment has a much deeper application than just that, it has the application of all of our life circumstances, all of our wants and desires, that we should be content with what God has provided, content with the circumstances that God has placed us in and the calling that he has placed upon our life. And so, um, you know, when we consider it this way, 
we have to just beware of being covetous, beware of being envious in this in this arena in life as well as any other arena in life. It's not just the monetary and the materialistic things that we have to be content about, but other areas of life included. And from a kind of a psychological perspective, I guess you could say that's my background. Uh, my, my graduate education is in psychology and counseling. Um, we know from the research that a positive attitude regarding gratitude or gratefulness or appreciation is a vital characteristic to happiness. Uh, the positive psychologists, as they're known, describe this as a skill or a discipline. Uh, it's and, and this this idea uh, of having being grateful for what we have, uh, appreciating what we have, is certainly linked. I'd say even synonymous, strongly related to the biblical concept of thankfulness and contentment. So it's very hard to you know be content and at the same time be miserable, <laughs> to be thankful for what you have, but but then also be disappointed with what you don't have. And so when we find ourselves in areas of disappointment, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a sin. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, what I'm saying is that we ought to focus on contentment. We ought to do a positive uh, asset inventory in our life and find things to be thankful for and try to find a way to develop and cultivate that discipline of contentment. And it can really change our mindset and our attitude. And along with this, I mentioned, you know, uh, in order to be content, we can only do that if we are uh, are very cautious about be, being uh, aware of coveting and envy. Coveting being to yearn or crave something, uh, to have something. It's a type of greed in a sense. Envy uh, being resentful or longingly aroused by someone else's possessions or advantages. So again, this doesn't have to be monetary or materialistic. Um, uh, but we have to be careful about that. It's very easy to look at what other people have, not just their possessions, not just their money, but their situation in life, the advantages we think they have and want to be more like other people, be more like the common picture, be more like, you know, what is the, you know, the, you know kind of ultimate or optimal uh, view of what life should be life in our like in our culture. Ephesians 5, uh, first few verses there talk about covetousness. And a couple things it says, number one is covetousness must not be named among the saints. And it also says the covetous person is an idolater. Again, this isn't just about money and possessions. This is about uh, placing things in such an important uh, regard in our mind that it distracts us from serving God. We serve an image of what we think life should be like. We serve an image of what um, we want our life to be like instead of being content and serving God uh, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And as a part of this, we must differentiate between needs and our wants or desires. Needs being the basic necessities of life, like shelter and food and water and clothing. And his desire being everything else that's not necessary. God's promised us that he'll supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. Uh, but he's only promised to provide our needs, things that are not necessary for our existence, uh, we can't automatically lay claim to. And now, many people point to scriptures like Psalms 37 and 4 tells us if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he shall give us the desires of thine heart. 
Uh, the following verse says, Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Well, this is a beautiful verse of Scripture, and we should certainly embrace these promises. But the point here, I believe, of this Scripture is if we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we immerse ourselves in the Lord, if we uh, make our will his will, if we submit ourselves to him, and obey his commandments and follow his guidance and direction from our life. We make our priority his priorities. Um, then we will find ourselves being fulfilled because we want for ourselves what the Lord wants for us. So the idea here is not we can have whatever we want uh, if we love the Lord or something like that, but that when we truly get on the same page as God, when we truly immerse ourselves in a life in service to the Lord, then our wants and desires uh, become what he wants and desires for us. And in that way, we can always trust him knowing uh, that our life will work out the way God intends. So the disappointment, I think, that many people feel in this regard, certainly disappointment is a natural emotion. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with feeling this way at times. Uh, but my word of caution would be we must not brood in it. Uh, we must not allow disappointment to be continual and ongoing uh, because this is certainly a, a sign and a symptom of discontentment. Uh, we cannot let anything uh, rob us of our peace and joy in the Lord. And that includes any kind of disappointment that we might have. Now, we're all going to suffer disappointment from time to time in life. The point is that we can't allow that to detract from our joy and our peace that we have in the Lord. And we can't allow it to move us from a place of contentment in our lives and being happy with what God had given. It's certainly not wrong to want to be married when you're not, to desire to be married when you're not, but we must not make it an idol. We must not make it a point of, of covetousness or envy, as we said. And, you know, no matter how old one is, it may still happen for some people. I don't know about this particular case. I don't know the specifics of it. Uh, but we must be willing to follow God's calling God's gifting, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, God's will for our life. At some point, we have to take ownership of our own situation also, uh, realizing God may or may not have I don't know the individual cases. Once again, I'm, not, I'm just speaking generally. I've known some people that I don't know for sure that God specifically called them to be single, but they never married because they never did anything that got them closer to a marriage relationship. And so it's not God's fault per se. Uh, perhaps they they uh, didn't take responsibility uh, for the, themselves in that regard. In other cases, maybe they did, and, and it was God's will and plan for them to remain single. Maybe God had a specific ministry he called them to. Maybe the source of one's disappointment, and again, maybe not this specific situation, but other situations may be misplaced. Perhaps the disappointment is, is just a... a um, that one hasn't lived up to the calling God had in their life in ministry and service to others, uh, but we are wrongly uh, attributing it to uh, never having become married. There's so many different things that we can say about that. And on, on a final note here, and this is going a little bit longer than I had planned, but um, 
you know, on this idea of disappointment and happiness, because that, that really that's what this is about. We want to be happy. We want to feel fulfilled in our life, every one of us. Well, as I said, Paul, Paul points to, to marriage and singleness both as neither one having a significant advantage over the other in terms of, of our fulfillment and our purpose in life or anything else. You don't have to be um, married to be happy and you don't have to be single to be happy. That's kind of the human dilemma, isn't it? We, we always want what we can't have. The grass is always greener on the other side. How many married people do you know that constantly complain about their marriages and single people who want nothing more than to, to have a mate and to be married? Uh, so, you know, it never gets better. But again, uh, I'll note from, from, a, from my background in, in psychology and counseling, I've done a little bit of reading and, and studying and uh, the field of positive psychology, which is just really uh, kind of instead of approaching, you know, the human psychology of what makes us depressed or what makes us unfulfilled, it's kind of flipping the script and trying to research and discover what makes us fulfilled and what makes us happy. That's the field of positive psychology. And what they've discovered about marital status uh, is that it's a very poor indicator of happiness. Everybody who's single thinks if only they could be married, they could be happy. But what we find is when people actually get married, it doesn't uh, intrinsically cause happiness. Uh, we could be just as happy single. And we know this from, from much research. We tell, we tell ourselves that we simply cannot be happy or whole if we're not married or at least romantically or intimately connected to someone in the secular sense. But you know, the, the research indicates this is simply not true. It's not correct. I know it's hard to believe uh, for someone who feels this way, but that's not the case. It's really, there's really not a significant impact on our mental state being happy uh, regarding our marital status. Uh, it's just kind of an expectation that we have, a falsehood that we tell ourselves, a self-fulfilling prophecy that many people have. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, relationships are extremely important to be having uh, fulfilling, I guess you can say, our intrinsic uh, goals, our intrinsic values. But this can be achieved through other types of social contact in other areas, such as closeness or connectedness with, with uh, close friends or other loved ones. It doesn't have to be a marital relationship. Uh, you know, isolation is a bad thing. Uh, and so if one's just feeling depressed or disappointment, uh, marriage is not the only solution. Just being uh, uh, more social, being more connected with people in general, having fulfilling relationships in our life that don't need to be a romantic or intimate or a marital relationship is, is something to think about and to consider. Again, I don't know the specifics of this particular situation. I'm just trying to help here. So relationships are really one of the big three uh, things that help us fulfill our intrinsic goals and value, which are, is, is critical and tantamount to finding happiness and joy in life. The other two, just very quickly, are personal growth, being the best version of ourselves. I'd like to state this in a biblical sense, being who God wants us to be, finding our fulfillment and our purpose in God's calling in our life. And then the other one is community. Uh, again, relationship is one. Personal growth is one. Community, not necessarily uh, personal close relationships, but more of being a part of something, 
a sense of making a contribution to something important, uh, making the world or, or our community a better place. This is closely related to the skill or discipline of altruism, which is good works or acts of kindness and care, which is vital for having a fulfilled sense of self. So I mention this to humbly suggest that often people dis, oftentimes people's disappointment, oftentimes people's unhappiness is misplaced. Uh, we, we assume that it's because of one area in life, but it's because we might be fulfilled in other areas of life. So can I say, uh, I don't know if any particular individual is called to be married or not married. That's for uh, each one of us to figure out. But what I can say, whatever state we find ourselves in, whatever state God has put us in, assuming that we're not responsible for missing God's will, but in any event, we can find fulfillment and happiness through personal relationships and friendships through community. And can I suggest that the church is the best place to find a sense of community through acts of altruism, uh, through becoming our best selves, which is, you know, really following God's guidance and direction and, uh, and being used of him to serve others. Um, all these things build happiness in our lives. So sometimes our, our, our disappointment is misplaced. So can I suggest instead of, instead of telling ourselves that the only way I could be happy is if I was, were married, is, is to look at these other areas and maybe see where we miss God's will in other areas of our life that we can do something about, uh, that we can find fulfillment in. And as Paul mentioned, you know, one of the benefits of not being married is we are freed, we're unencumbered to give our service to God. I don't know too many people who are consumed with serving others, consumed with ministry, consumed with helping others, consumed to uh, really building the church community and being an integral part of that, uh, that just live a life of constant disappointment uh, because that in and of itself self brings joy and happiness. And, and the peace that God wants us to have. So uh, Timmy, who sent this email, I'm not trying to minimize your situation or anyone else who might be uh, listening. Uh, I'm just saying that there's a lot of things to consider here. And so I would just encourage you to seek that contentment, to seek this gratefulness, and, and to try to maximize uh, these intrinsic values and purpose in life uh, such as personal growth and, and close friendships and, and, and relationships and, and sense of community and altruism and serving others and see if that doesn't fill some of the void that you think is being uh, is there as because of being unattached or single. Uh, I, I bet you'd be pleasantly surprised if you really follow God's direction in some of these other areas in life. Well, thank you all who have listened to this podcast today, and I hope you find some of this information uh, interesting and maybe even helpful. So that's all the time I have for uh, today. So until next time, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Thanks again for listening. Farewell for now.